the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Kyle Samani, who's founding partner at Multicoin Capital, an investment firm based in Austin, Texas. Multicoin invests across public and private cryptocurrency markets and crypto asset markets and has over $100 million in client assets. I've invited Kyle to talk about what happened in the market for Bitcoin and Ethereum and other cryptocurrencies on March the 12th and 13th uh, during the peak of the panic over the coronavirus. Uh, Kyle has written a couple of interesting blogs on the topic and has argued that the underlying market structure for cryptocurrencies proved much more fragile during those uh, two days than anyone could have imagined. So I've invited Kyle on to talk about exactly what happened, why it happened, and what we can do to ensure that things are more robust in the future. Carl, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Uh, could you please start by telling listeners a little bit about Multicoin Capital? Sure. Multicoin Capital is an investment firm based in Austin, Texas. I'm one of the co-founders and I'm a managing partner at the firm. Uh, Multicoin invests um, in the crypto ecosystem uh, exclusively. We invest in companies building in the space, as well as new teams launching tokens. We invest across public markets, um, so things that trade you know, on coinmarketcap.com, things on Binance, on Coinbase, those kinds of places, and we invest uh, in private markets. So think uh, com private companies like Coinbase, uh, like Starkware, like Tagomi, those kinds of things. Um, we have 13 employees today. We manage more than 100 million across two, two, two funds. Um, our team is ge geographically dispersed all over the US and in China, uh, and yeah, we are full-time crypto investors having a lot of fun. Okay, great. So uh, we've seen a very volatile month in cryptocurrency, and you published a couple of uh, uh, po posts on the Multicoin Capital site uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago where you, you, you argued that the market structure of cryptocurrencies broke during the downtrend we saw on March the 12th and March the 13th. Why do you think the market structure broke? Well, perhaps we could start by just reminding uh, listeners what happened on those on the 12th and 13th of March, but then perhaps you explain why you think the market structure broke. Sure. So um, on March 12th, there were two major leg downs in crypto. The first leg down took Bitcoin from about 7,500 to about 6,000 or so, uh, maybe 58. And then the second leg down took uh, Bitcoin from there all the way down to as low as 37, 3,800. Uh, those were kind of two distinct moves. They were, I think, 12 hours apart or so. Um, so we don't know exactly what triggered the first move. The, the general hypothesis is that this was high correlation to equity markets, which tanked that day. Um, and so people were just going risk off and selling assets. It's a reasonable theory. We don't know if it's true with 100% certainty, but it certainly seems reasonable on the surface. Um, and so during that first leg down, um, nothing really broke. Uh, but obviously prices went down a lot. There happened to be a lot of people who were levered, um, levered long when that move went down. And so... Over the next 12 hours, what you saw happening was all the people who lend uh, lend assets to other players in the space. So think BlockFi, Genesis, Celsius, Nexo, those kind of major lenders who typically lend U.S. dollars to funds like like Multicoin um, and who go levered long. Those um, you know those those loans went underwater, and so those lenders had to make margin calls. Um, and you know there's kind of specific provisions in place in those contracts on how long you have to respond and, and how long you have to deposit additional collateral and those kinds of things. And so in this case, we saw that there was about a 12 hour period or so um, in which you know, someone had the chance to respond and ultimately did not respond in time or did not post collateral in time. And as a result of that, the lender 
um, had to start liquidating collateral. And that, that caused the second leg down that happened later that day. During that second leg down, then the market structure really fell apart. Um, so that's kind of an overview of what happened. If you'd like, I can kind of go. Yeah, so let's talk about the role of leveraged uh, market participants and, and in particular the, 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 the derivatives exchanges that offer their traders very very high levels of leverage on on cryptocurrencies like like Bitcoin. What and how significant was their role in the you know in the in, in what happened? Yeah, so uh, crypto traders, I mean, like a lot of traders like trading with leverage. Crypto is no different. Um, there are broadly speaking two major ways to take on leverage. One is by going through lenders like like Genesis and BlockFi and those guys. Uh, and then the other kind of major route is to get leverage directly on exchange. Uh, the primary product in which traders now use to take on leverage are the perpetual swap contracts um, that BitMEC popularized, and, and those contracts are now widely available on all major derivatives exchanges. Well, being and they give you up to 100, 125 times leverage, which is a huge amount of leverage. Co- correct. The they theoretically offer up yeah. to 100x leverage. In practice, yeah. very few people trade with that much leverage. Um, yeah. General consensus is that people trade with 10 to 30x leverage is kind of the normal normal range it's not no one really trades with 100x or no one with real money does um and so um during the second leg down there were a lot of you know after that first leg down the market was down 20 25 over the course of a few hours a lot of people said great this is a big dip and they they initiated aggressive positions going long with leverage um those folks then started to get liquidated uh as as the lender um started liquidating collateral um you know later that day and so then that just kind of pushed prices further um, unfortunately, BitMEX is, is a matching engine and liquidation engine started to get overloaded with demands um, as Bitcoin kind of started getting below uh, below 4,500 or so. Um, and they basically could not uh, process all their liquidations. Um, and so what they they kind of just got, got into a series of cascading liquidations. Uh, at, at one point when Bitcoin was down at 37 or 3,800 on BitMEX for just a few seconds, uh, but at, some, at one point when it was that low... Um, Bitcoin, excuse me, BitMEX had $200 million worth of outstanding liquidations, but there were only $20 million left on the order book. Um, the problem was that all the market makers were getting wiped out uh, on the way down, and so they they were not providing liquidity. Um, in general, market makers widen their spreads to begin with when volatility picks up, which further exacerbated the problem. And then lastly, the, the Bitcoin blockchain itself had slowed down because um, because prices collapsed, and so miners were turning off their mining machines, which reduces the hash rate, which reduces the rate of, of block, you know, people finding blocks, which means people were not even able to deposit bitcoins onto Bitmex in order. Okay, to- let me Carl, let me just let, let me just interrupt you there for a second. Let's talk. I'd like to talk to you about the, that. Uh, you know, the, 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 uh, how transactions get processed in a second. But uh, you made the point that you know Bitmex there was a big imbalance of, of um, you know longs remaining to be liquidated and, and the amount of bids in the system. And, and effectively, they, they decided then to switch their uh, matching engine off for a period of time. This is not the first time this has happened on Bitmex or other futures exchanges, right? Um, so Bitmex denies. So, so the the uh, I don't want to say general consensus, but a, a common theory, one that I subscribe to personally, is that BitMEX realized how bad the situation was and just pulled the plug effectively um, yeah. on the system. Um, BitMEX denies that, and they say there was a denial of service attack and that caused their systems to go down. Um, the the time the the coincidence it, it is obviously a very unlikely coincidence. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, yeah. Just to, put it, to put it that way. 
Yeah. So just returning to the question of network congestion, you, you, point, you pointed out in your blog that it, it takes a few blocks, let's say, on the Bitcoin network for transactions to be considered final. And therefore, if you're trying to post Bitcoin as collateral to one of the exchanges, you know, they have to wait, you have to wait. And then if transaction processing times get stretched out, that causes a problem in itself. So how well did the networks, let's say Bitcoin and Ethereum, cope with the congestion that occurred on that day? Yeah, so it's generally understood that a large amount of traffic on the Bitcoin and Ethereum networks is people shuttling money between exchanges. Um, for anyone who, who trades crypto and you know has traded on multiple exchanges, it's a very common thing you, you, you can experience anecdotally of uh, just shuttling money around. Um, we don't know exactly how much you know of, of demand is is that, but it's certainly a meaningful percentage. On days when volatility picks up, like on March twelfth, um, that percentage explodes, uh, and so just a huge amount of trap of traffic was people shuttling money between exchanges. Um, for and there's all kinds of reasons. There's people who got liquidated on one exchange, and so they had to counterbalance their positions. There's there are liquidity providers who had you know had to just rebalance their positions across exchanges. There are arbitragers who are just trying to collapse all the, the spreads between these different exchanges. There's all kinds of motivations for different market participants to shuttle money around. Um, as a result of that, uh, that causes the, the, blo- the blockchains to become uh, o- overloaded. And so Bitcoin and Ethereum were both operating at 100% capacity for most of March 12th. Um, and so what that means is that a large percentage of transactions um, either do not go through or just takes, takes hours for them to get processed. Um, so okay. that, that how, how well did the, let's say, we, the in, in Bitcoin, for example, the, the transaction fees are supposed to adjust to reflect, uh, you know, to address that kind of network congestion? They, you know, they go up, and therefore the people who pay more for transactions get processed faster. How well did that fee setting mechanism work on that particular day to, to solve these problems? Yeah. So I mean, it, 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 there's no kind of universal way to assess that. The the, the fee setting mechanism depends on who you are and what you're trying to do. If you have a, a million dollar arbitrage you're trying to take, take advantage of, right? Like paying a $5 fee versus a 50 cent fee doesn't matter. You're willing to pay a thousand dollar fee, right? You just don't care. Um, and so it, it depends on what you're trying to do and how much money you have at stake and how much profit you know you think you're going to make. Um, the, the What's interesting is you have different people who are optimizing fees in different ways. So if you're just a consumer moving money around manually, you know, there's like a default fee estimation system in MetaMask and in other wallets to try and estimate fees. Those are assuming you are not a time-sensitive trader. So those fees went up on the order of 10x for the most of the day. But there's a lot of people, if you're an arbitrager who says, I, I see $50,000 laying on the ground, you know, I, I want to go pick it up. There are people who paid $1,000, you know, to get their, their transactions included. So you just have very wide price elasticity for block space um, and, and the willingness people are paying to, to move their money around. Um, I generally think that the, the fee markets, it, the fee market objectively is broken in Bitcoin because of how the auction system works and how mining works. Um, there are proposals on how to kind of structurally design better fee markets um, in Ethereum and in other blockchains. Some of the newer blockchains like Solana, actually, uh, they have a, a much more intelligent fee market uh, or fee mechanism um, to kind of deal with these situations. But as they're currently structured, which is basically just miners pick, you know, the highest, uh, highest gas fees. Um, th- those are ripe for, for market failure. Could, could you explain a bit more why you think Bitcoin's fee market is broken? I didn't understand that point. Y- yeah. So um, right now, the, 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 mar- the fee market in Bitcoin is basically just, uh, my, hey, my, it's arbitrary. Miners choose which transactions to include or not include. Um, and so you could offer a $1,000 fee and a miner can say no, and it's the miner's choice. 
Um, this is always true, but, but just kind of it's, it's worth noting that it, these things are always arbitrary. So the design of the fee market needs to be one to kind of design to optimally incentivize miners to include transactions at the lowest possible fee to the user, right? And those two things are kind of fundamentally in, in conflict. Um, and so there's, there's interesting design mechanisms for how to uh, kind of counterbalance these two situations. Uh, in the case of the, the best solution to this problem um, is the Ethereum community has proposed it is called EIP-1559. Uh, um, and this kind of designs a new, uh, it actually changes the monetary policy of Ethereum. It, it modifies inflation ever so slightly. It also then introduces transaction burning or burning money as part of uh, moving money around. And the, the point of the system is that you create strong incentives for miners not to price gouge um, the, the users and you, you introduce some elasticity into the block space. Um, okay, to, but, but we're, we're still some way or far, or far from having something equivalent in Bitcoin. I mean, the, the problem with any of these more advanced um, economic models for, for block space is that they require changing the monetary policy of Bitcoin. And the monetary policy of Bitcoin is sacrosanct. So yeah. <laughs> that seems implausible. Okay. Um, now, you, you mentioned um, divergence of prices on different exchanges, people not being able to offset a long position on one exchange with a short position on, on another. In the traditional financial system, you'd have you know, clearing houses behind the scenes offsetting one position against another or prime brokers that help you to you know, margin uh, cross-margin positions. Um, how far are we from seeing something similar developing in cryptocurrencies? Uh, I think we are likely to have some versions of that by the end of this year. Um, the most likely candidates to offer those services are Tagomi and Amber. Um, Tagomi is really focused on uh, Western markets and Amber on Eastern markets. Uh, my sense is Tagomi is a, a bit further along in that process than Amber is, but these guys certainly recognize the, the kind of current challenges in the market structure. Um, and they are working to to ameliorate these. I am optimistic we'll see something by the end of this year. If not this year, then certainly next year we'll have something. Will JP Morgan step in and use their balance sheet? Probably not. Will you know new startups like Tagomi and Amber step up? Definitely. Okay. Um, and what, if anything, can be done to address the problem of you know huge levels of leverage on the what you know unregulated crypto derivatives exchanges? Yeah, there's. I don't know how you solve this problem, and I, I'm not sure that it's, it's a problem actually. Um, I mean, it, crypto fundamentally is about you know not, not censoring and freedom of expression. A lot of strong libertarian ideals kind of baked into the ethos of what these assets represent. Uh, and so, if if there are people who demand 100x leverage or even 20x leverage, uh, you can say that's irresponsible, and maybe that's a correct state or you know correct judgment or not. But there are realities. There are people who want this, um, and exchanges are in the business of serving their customers. Uh, and so, you know, given that these exchanges are unregulated, it's it's hard to see any reason why they're going to not offer that that kind of leverage. Um, I, I think the more interesting way to think about this problem is: can we design better liquidation engines to deal with large scale liquidations? And definitively, the answer is yes. Um, the current system, as it's designed, is, is simply not. It's just not very intelligent for for dealing with liquidations, but we can get a lot smarter there. Okay, you mentioned earlier, Carl, that uh, you know the other way of getting leverage is is from a, um, a you know a margin lender. What's a typical level of you know, over collateralization in in a cryptocurrency based loan? One hundred and twenty percent is standard. Okay, uh, and, and did that prove sufficient? Probably not, I guess, in, on March the twelfth. I mean, it, it proves sufficient in that all of the major lenders said that they remain solvent. 
Um, so in that sense that like there, there was no, you know, collapse and then contagion where, uh, you know, you had insolvent lenders and you spread contagion to the system. So, so that sense that was modeled correctly. Um, it just so happens that someone who took on, they took on too much leverage on their own balance sheet and they got liquidated because they, they couldn't post more collateral. Um, and so that, you know, those market participants obviously got, um, you know, they were, they basically wiped out, but the system as a whole functioned correctly and the risk models, the lenders were running, you know, proved, proved robust. Okay, it's an interesting contrast then with uh, what happened in at MakerDAO, the decentralized finance protocol, because that had an inbuilt over collateralization level of uh, you know 150 percent, and yet that proved insufficient because of stale price feeds, and, and effectively the system became insolvent as a result of what happened that day. C- correct. So, so Maker is basically a smart contract that, that acts as a lender. Um, in this case, you can only let borrow one asset, which is DAI, which is a synthetic stablecoin that's pegged to the value of the U.S. dollar. Um, and in the case of Maker, there were kind of a couple of compounding problems. The first is that as the price of Ether dipped all the way down to as low as $88, um, the, the, mate, the oracles who update the price of, of ETHUSD and Maker effectively stopped responding. Um, it's unclear if there were technical reasons why they stopped responding or if they realized the system was about to become insolvent. And so they stopped responding to basically bridge the system. Um, we do not know for sure what, which theory is, is correct, um, but they basically just stopped updating prices in the system. Uh, the other big problem was that uh, there was not enough uh, DAI available to actually, uh, to actually run collateral auctions. And so uh, as, pe- as certain lenders became insolvent, assuming certain borrowers became insolvent, um, the way that any of these decentralized finance systems are designed is that anyone can basically go liquidate their positions. Um, and they have to basically bid for the borrower's collateral. And there was not enough DAI available, uh, and so people could not submit bids correctly for, for Maker. And so you had kind of a lot of weird auction mechanics that, that ended up happening. And then all of this was confounded by the fact that the network was operating at 100% capacity, um, and so people were often unable to place bids because the network was literally at full, and, and people were not realizing that their gas, you know, their, their, the fee market was in that software was, was you know, not designed correctly for so what broader conclusions should we draw from the Maker episode? Is it that automated lending protocols don't work very well? Or, or, or you know, what, you know, what, what should we think about what happened there? No, so I don't think, I don't think this, we can make any broad-based generalizations that they don't work. And in fact, I could argue that this proved that they, they do work uh, very largely. Uh, I, I think that this, this ep, um, episode really proved that the, the problem is not Maker. The problem is Ethereum. Um, you cannot build a global financial system on top of uh, on top of a, a blockchain network that supports 15 transactions per second that has that updates the state every 15 seconds. Uh, the world simply moves at a much faster pace, uh, and, and so just, you have fundamental technical constraints in Ethereum on you know running a global financial system. Um, and and I, I think it's basically laughable to kind of assert that Ethereum can be offering any sort of global finance products. Um, it's just, it's just, it's just not even. I mean, it's off by multiple orders of magnitude in terms of uh, being able to service uh, kind of global demands, um, both in terms of aggregate throughput and in terms of latency. Um, okay, so what what what, te- what technological changes uh, can be made to support greater throughput or and lower latency on both Bitcoin and Ethereum? Yeah, so we'll start, we'll start with Bitcoin. So there's kind of two major. Um, areas of discussion for, for Bitcoin to solve this problem. Uh, one is Lightning Network um, and the other is sidechains. Uh, so the challenge with Lightning Network is you have to collateralize cha- you know, bilateral channels between parties. 
Uh, and so on days like March 12th, when volatility picks up, it, what, what's not happening is you're not actually having a lot of, of bilateral flow where you have dollars going back and forth or Bitcoins going back and forth between exchanges. What ends up happening is you have a unilateral flow where all the capital flows in one direction because the price of one exchange is higher than the other. And so all the capital you know shuttles right from the high price to the low price or, or vice versa. Um, and so the problem with Lightning is that you, you know, you've got 10 or so major trading venues. Um, and if you have one-way capital flows, then it, it just it doesn't really solve the problem because you, you know these exchanges would have to collateralize all of these channels. There would be about 100 channels would need to be collateralized or so. Um, and most of the capital flows would be going down one or two of those channels. Uh, and, and so they wouldn't, so there wouldn't be, be enough Bitcoin to go around. Correct. Exactly. So, so Lightning doesn't really solve this problem. Um, it could help on the margin. Look, it going to make the system 10 or 20% better, like sure. But is it going to make the system 10x better? That's definitely not the case. Um, the second challenge, so the other solution is our sidechains. Um, sidechains theoretically should solve the problem. The problem- Could you just remind us as what sidechains are? Yeah, so in simple terms, think of sidechains as say, hey, look, there's a, a pool of, we all, five of us put five Bitcoin, you know, one Bitcoin each in this address. Um, that address is, let's say, a multisig. All five of us, you know, have a, a, a key, a key to kind of unlock those bitcoins. Um, and let's say if all five of us agree to move those bitcoins, then we can kind of move them out to someone else. The idea with um, side chains is basically we we do that kind of a deposit, and then we just create our own ledger uh, on the side where we you know, the, there's a total of five bitcoins, and we can trade those bitcoins as fast as we want on the side ledger. Right. right so that that's the basic idea. Um, this idea has been around since 2014 or so. Um, and, uh, today it basically doesn't exist in any meaningful sense of the word. Um, Blockstream launched a, a what they call the liquid side chain about a year ago. Usage is effectively zero. It's close enough to zero. You can round down to zero. Um, and, and so the question is like, why, why has this been so slow? Why doesn't anyone use this? Uh, and, and I think the answer is, is relatively clear, although I can't prove it. Um, if you just look at the participating members in liquid, uh, you'll notice that basically none of the U.S. U.S.-based exchanges are there, and even some of the large um, Chinese exchanges like Binance are also not not listed there either. Um, what this tells you is that that these exchanges around the world do not trust the other exchanges, uh, and that's why they don't want to participate in this kind of a system. Um, it's very easy to see uh, a setting, setting where the unregulated exchanges could um, could basically not pay out regulated exchanges, and regulated exchanges would have no recourse in this kind of a system, and so. Um, Liquid hasn't taken off for, for this reason. Um, and so it's just very, at this point, it's hard to see a side chain taking off on Bitcoin, just kind of given the So reaction. just to summarize, Carl, so, so uh, you're saying that Lightning doesn't work even theoretically, and whereas side chains do work theoretically, but they're difficult to implement because there's a trust problem. Correct. Okay. So where do we go then when, as far as Bitcoin is concerned to improve the throughput? Can we go anywhere? Uh, there are no other really known solutions. Uh, look, there's a lot of like, again, mechanical things on the margin. So there's like uh, ways you can you can batch transactions to improve kind of uh, block space efficiencies. There are some like cool new things to do with uh, storm signatures and stuff. These things um, will add some level of improvement on the margin, maybe on the order of 10 to 30%. But um, like for the system, to, for Bitcoin to actually work as a global financial asset, it needs a million X the throughput that it has today, maybe a hundred thousand X. And none of the proposed, none of the proposals today are even remotely, you know, in that have even a theoretical chance to get to that kind of an improvement. Uh, right. But in, you, but you continue to hold long positions in Bitcoin as a firm. 
we we are along the coin. Yeah. So what was so what what is what are you what are you looking at the you know the ultimate use case? Is it a, as a kind of less uh, you know less frequently used settlement network, or what what is the what is the use case that you see? Um. In the long run, I'm not sure. Um, I think Bitcoin is going to fail in the long run. Uh, long run here is, is five plus years. I'm not really worried about it failing today. I'm not really worried about anything displacing it today. Um, I just, I just, it, I just don't see how you can actually build a global financial asset on top of these payment rails. It, it just doesn't work. Um, and and we have ample evidence of that. Uh, March 12th being the most high profile recent example. Okay, so let's turn to Ethereum. Um, you know, what what can be done there using new technology to improve things? Yeah, so with with general purpose smart contracts with kind of full expressibility and Turing complete logic, you can do some more advanced things. Um, my kind of favorite examples are probably looking at things like optimistic rollups, and then specifically kind of implementations of optimistic rollups like Scale. Um, that effect gives you basically the benefits of side chains, um, but you actually can get that with without the same trust assumptions. Um, and so if you, if you can get those without the same trust assumptions, then hopefully you can get the major exchange operators on board um, to that system because they don't have to trust one another. That is still a, a fundamental market assumption. And we have no, it has not been you know proven that that's how the world will play out. My, my big concern with all of the new kind of layer two things on Ethereum is that even if they work theoretically, again, this could just be one case where, where practically the exchanges don't get on board. So um you could very easily see a world where BitMEX creates its own side chain, where Binance creates its own side chain, or Optimistic Rollup chain, where Coinbase creates their own. Um, and in the event in which that happens, um, that's problematic because then you end up having to shuttle assets back and forth between those chains, which effectively doesn't those those you know side chains, which effectively doesn't solve the kind of core problem at hand. So um, it theoretically, it solves the problem if everyone agrees on kind of a single implementation. But there's a good reason to think that that may not be the case. Um, the other really commonly proposed solution is sharding, which effectively boils down to the same problem of, you know, as you, as you send transactions between shards, you introduce latency and you increase trans- you decrease transaction throughput um, as you move things between shards. Um, in, in this kind of a setting where you've got all these different exchange operators, um, it's, it's very likely that either all the exchanges end up locating on one shard, in which case you haven't changed anything from status quo, um, or if they are between multiple shards, then you... Right, but if you're just moving all the assets from shard A to shard B, then you haven't really solved the problem either because shard A to shard B is limited to the throughput of, of a single shard. And so um, it's just not clear how, like in practice, sharding actually solves the problem of when you just have this, these massive spikes in demand to shuttle assets around. Okay. Could we, could we, we've got a few minutes left to go. I just uh, would like to ask you to put things in the perspective of the broader developments in financial markets, because obviously we've seen a you know, crash in equity markets. The bond markets have been dislocated. Central banks have been propping up investment funds, holding bonds. You had a huge dislocation of the gold market where uh, there was a problem with delivering gold bars in, in New York under the futures contract. I mean, we have to put what's happening in cryptocurrencies in, in that context. And clearly there's no central bank of Bitcoin. There's no central bank of Ethereum to lend everybody money when things run into run into trouble um you know how how well in that you know from that perspective have cryptocurrency networks been doing and what can we expect to see going forward yeah so in the, in the near term um i don't expect any of these technical solutions to, to become viable it, it's certainly just going to take a while for any of this kind of technical infrastructure to get changed out i'm optimistic in the long run we will get there but in the next 12 months i, I don't think any of these are going to meaningfully impact the market um However, on the downside, uh, on the flip side, excuse me, 
Um, this move down wiped out basically all of the leverage in the system, um, which is a healthy thing, arguably. And so it's just unlikely to see any of these kinds of aggressive moves down because there's no leverage to get wiped out. A huge percentage of these moves down was just people getting left, it was getting you know, liquidated. So we, we've kind of ameliorated the problem in the short term just by reducing leverage. Um, in the medium to long term, I'm optimistic that we will have the introduction of prime brokers and clearinghouses. I'm optimistic we will develop better scaling technologies for these systems. Uh, but, but that stuff is still pretty far out. Okay, so we could expect to see, so maybe not so much volatility again in the short term, but there's nothing stopping similar problems happening again in a year or two's time. Yeah, in 12 months' time, we could have the exact same thing could happen again. That's absolutely on the table. Because within a year, we, the same amount of leverage could get built back up in the system. Um, and that can happen for sure. So when it comes to Bitcoin and Ethereum, any, any other particular things you're looking at for the remainder of 2020 for people to keep an eye out for? I am super excited about a lot of the, the smaller assets in crypto. There's a whole bunch of stuff that got started in 2017 and 2018 that a lot of them launched last year that are still really below the radar. Um, and I think there's a, a, a large tail of assets uh, that are doing super interesting things that are starting from very low valuations um, that we're super excited about. Okay, so you're, you're, you're still anticipating broader investor interest in the whole ecosystem? Yes, absolutely. I, I think there's going to be multiple assets this year that 10x in crypto um, that people don't yet realize they will, but I, I feel very good that they will. Okay, and, and the, you know, the, the investors you're talking to from you know, outside the crypto ecosystem, from the traditional finance sector, has, you know, have their, uh, they've got lots of other things to worry about at the moment, but what, you know, what, what kind of feedback have you been getting from them? Um. Look, the, the people who bother to talk to me are people who are generally interested in crypto. I, most investors, if I tell them I'm a, I'm a crypto investor, they just kind of walk away, um, which is good. That means I don't waste my time. Uh, the people who are still interested in talking to me, they are generally getting more excited because A, prices are lower uh, than they were a few weeks ago. And B, they everyone sees you know that, that modern monetary theory is basically coming into effect, that any notion of, of deficits is you know kind of going out the window. Um, and there's, the people should be rightly concerned about inflation, not in the near term, uh, but in the long term, uh, in the near term, we have massive deflationary pressures as the economy levers and as oil prices tank. So I'm not worried about near term inflation, but um, there's very ample reason to be concerned about long term inflation, both in the U.S. and the emerging economies around the world. Carl, thank you very much for your time. It's been a very interesting chat. Okay, well, thank you so much. This was a blast. new money review podcast the future of money in 30 minutes money is changing fast it's moving more quickly and cheaply it's becoming more intelligent and more transparent at the same time it's becoming more complex and for many of us more annoying if you'd like to support new money review you can do so in two ways on the right hand side of our homepage, newmoneyreview.com you can find a link to our patreon account p-a-t-r-e-o-n forward slash new money review there you can make a regular payment to support us. Or if you'd like to make a donation in cryptocurrency, you can find our Bitcoin and Ethereum addresses also on the right-hand side of our homepage. Thank you.